This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Lizzie Pook, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Isn't this amazing, this world at the moment? You're in London, I'm in San Francisco. And we, You know, we could be anywhere. We feel like we're in each other's lounge rooms. I know, the joys of technology or, the, or uh, you know, the one silver lining to the pandemic that we can just connect as easily as this. It's, yeah. it's really nice. It is really nice. Lizzie is an award-winning journalist and travel writer who lives in London. She has travelled to far-flung corners of the world for her work. She was inspired to write her debut novel, Moonlight and the Pearler's Daughter, which is the book we're talking about today, after researching the pearl diving industry in northwestern Australia. The result is a fascinating historical novel set in Western Australia in 1886. Wow. Wow. How does a young English person uh, write? about um, Australia in 1886. Tell me how that came about. Good question, good question. Well, you know, this was one of those stories where the inspiration built over a few years and a few different trips out to Australia. I have spent quite a lot of time out in Australia. It's one of my favourite places to to be and and to travel around. But the main inspiration struck when I was in Broome in the northwest. Kimberley region. Beautiful and to, part of the world. Oh, 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 stunning. You know, one of those places that really has to be seen to be believed. And I think that's why I found this so interesting because Broome is ridiculously beautiful with its bright green seas and its red pendant soil and these mangroves and just everything is stunning about it. But if you delve beneath the surface of this pearling history, because it's a town that was built on pearling, um, it's got some dark stories. It's got some, certainly got some dark stories to tell. And it was when I just by chance um, was, we went to a place called Willy Creek Pearls um, in Broome and did their little sort of pearl tour. And there was a guy there telling us about all the suits and, and the diving and it just fascinated me how dangerous and how brutal this industry was. You had men walking the seabed in heavy copper helmets, canvas suits, coming up against sharks, crocodiles, whales. Their air pipes could become entangled in whales and they sort of be dragged through the water until they drowned or they would face um, diver's paralysis, something that we now know of as the bends. And I just thought this... This history is so fascinating and it is, you know, you said, how does how does an English woman come to write, write about this? Broome was one of those places, it was kind of like a gold rush town. People from all over the world descended on this tiny township in the pursuit of pearl shell. And so there were lots of um, British settlers and lots of British people in the pearling industry. 
But, you know, ultimately it was a, a, a very brutal industry that was built on also forced Aboriginal labour and indentured labour as well. And that was a really hidden part of it that I certainly found fascinating. I think there can be a very romantic veneer to pearls and pearling in general. But ultimately, if you sort of pick away at that very shiny, beautiful surface, the, the truth beneath it is certainly um, not beautiful. But I was just, you know, mesmerised by that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, it's it's similar to the diamond industry as well. I mean, you know, where you have large value items being taken where we have to get them out of the ground or out of the sea or wherever, then you always seem to run into, you know, corruption, uh, slave labour, all sorts of things. There's always a human cost to the the pursuit of these things that we see as sort of natural gems or things that are just sort of gifted up by the earth no they're yeah. not gifted up by the earth you know people you know they're built on this the, their industries are built on sort of flesh and blood ultimately mm. uh, it's interesting I um many many years ago now I went scuba diving for the first time and I was hopeless at it as you can imagine uh, <laughs> however one of the things that really struck me was that we I don't think we're meant to be down here. Mm. Mm. You know, I think that's so interesting. And there's, there is something very otherworldly about the bottom of the ocean. And mm. I think just because so much of it is unknown and unknowable, there's so much of the ocean that we will never, well, I mean, man can create any sort of machine these days, I suppose. But, you know, there's so much of it that's yet to be explored. And there's something awe-inspiring and very gripping about that. And I think that's what, draws me to writing about the sea as well you know I'm fascinated by it and also terrified mm-hmm. by it and I think it sort of has that pull for quite a lot of people mm-hmm. and I think that's what I found certainly interesting about the pearling industry that people would put themselves into that sort of situation and it was just incredibly perilous mm-hmm. but yes the sea is something that I'm I'm enduringly inspired by and can just you know mm-hmm. look at it write about it for you know for the rest of my life. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good segue because I want to talk about how you came to writing and I want to go right back where you grew up because you've had a really interesting career. So talk to me about, you know, where the passion for writing is because you've been a journalist, of course, um, and that's yeah. a different style of writing. Uh, so talk to me about your career trajectory. Sure. So uh, growing up, I was always into writing and into books. Um my dad would go to the library every weekend and bring us back bags, you know, bags of books. And I think that's the greatest gift that he ever gave us, really. Um, but I never thought of being an author as a job. You know, that was never a thing that actually happened. I thought that was for, you know, old men with grey hair in their sort of panelled drawing rooms and, you know, ever so fancy. So it just never really sort of presented itself as a prospect. So, I, you know, I became a journalist and I was really lucky and had a really interesting career initially in women's magazines but I had editors who allowed me to do the most bonkers stories that I could pitch to them so you know I went to India to ride motorbikes with a feminist motorcycle gang or I stayed in a squat in Paris with a group of topless protesters and so I was really able to do some incredible stories and from that I moved into travel journalism so I spent several years basically traveling around the world and writing about incredible things I mean to think you know I look back on that now and think I can't believe that actually happened especially with this pandemic and you know how we've all I mean it's the same with me sometimes I have to pinch myself and think you know here I am sitting here talking to Lizzie and they call this a job (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I, I can't, you know, uh, yeah. and I think at the time when you're, when you're so busy and so immersed in something, yeah. you just think, oh, yeah, this is life. This is my job. What the pandemic certainly did for me was allow me the space to look back on that and think, wow, you know, I was so incredibly lucky to have had that mm-hmm. period of my life. Um, and so when I was doing all that travel, I was seeing interesting things and meeting incredible people and always had, you know, the idea that I would love to write a book, but I just haven't got the time or, you know, I haven't got the focus to do it. And actually two things happened. I, um, I got diagnosed with chronic illness um, with an autoimmune autoimmune, um, disorder. You know, it's, it's, it's okay, but it did mean that I was sort of forced into a period of stillness, Mm -hmm. something that was completely corroborated as well by the pandemic. And so ultimately I was not very well, not doing my job as a travel journalist. And so I just had this stretch of time opening up in front of me. I had at that point had the idea for the book and had been sort of tinkering away at it um, and doing various bits of research and thinking, oh, I'd love to build this into something. But it was when I had that free time that it actually turned into the draft of the book, you know, a terrible first draft of a book, but then that turned into another draft and another draft and another draft. So, you know, I think we do talk about, well, we have spoken about silver linings. And I think that is something that came with going through this um, period of ill health, it, it did steer me more towards, you know, something slower and something longer, like writing this book. So mm. I have to be grateful for that, I suppose. I want to um, talk about your travels. Do you, is there a, did you come away with it with a favourite country, a favourite place, favourite people? Um, because, you know, I love travel and here I am in San Francisco. And I don't, I feel as though tra- with travel, and, and you'll know more about this than I, I do because you've probably travelled more, but it's what I'm compelled to is the shock of the new, the difference. I love the difference. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I have been lucky to be to some amazing places and seen some incredible things, but I do think one thing that sticks out for me was travelling to the east coast of Greenland, which is completely uninhabited. So I, we were on an expedition ship and we were going into fjords that hadn't been, nobody had been to them since sort of Inuit hunters had been there hundreds of years ago. And so uh, we were completely cut off from any sort of satellite signal or anything like that. So if something happened, you know, that was it. We were, we were on our own out there. We didn't see anyone for over 10 days, I think. And I remember very, there was a very surreal occasion when we were on this boat going through this beautiful fjord, polar bears, you know, just the most ridiculous thing. And seeing a plane going across the sort of vast expanse of sky and thinking, wow, that's the first sort of link back to the world that we've seen for, yeah, over 10 days. But with that, you're really you know, at the mercy of the people that you're with. And I think that's just what makes travel so special. It's the people that you're sort of thrown up and thrown into these um, interesting and crazy experiences with. And that was such an incredible group. And I'll I'll never forget that trip. Mm. It's it's really such a privilege, I think, travel to be able to get around. It Um, is. It is. It's just the most privileged thing. Yeah. Okay, so you decide, and I always think this is hugely ambitious of anybody because I feel that, uh, well, I'm not a writer, but I've spoken to so many writers and I really feel as though I understand the challenges. Like, it's not an easy gig. And I guess with debut authors, it's the unknown, but Mm -hmm. it's 
as you say, first draft, second draft, third draft, fourth draft. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. So tell me yeah. about when you finally decided to sit down and write. I mean, because writing short form and writing long form are two totally different things. Do you know what? And I and I I thought I've been a journalist for mm. years. This is fine. This is just writing. Mm. Turns out that is not the case, especially if you've been a journal journalist when everything that you write is true. Everything you write has happened. And yes, there's there's a lot of truth in this book in terms of things things that happened and anecdotes and things like that. But essentially you're making something up, you're creating a new world. And actually I found that really jarring. I found it took a while to get comfortable with being free to just say whatever I wanted, um, having had been a you know having been a journalist before. So that that was quite interesting. And I I had a I had a bash at starting this novel a few years ago and got nowhere. I couldn't do it. And then I realised it's because I hadn't, you know, I wasn't taking the craft of it seriously. I hadn't sort of tried to teach myself how to write. And I don't think you necessarily have to do creative writing courses. I didn't do a creative writing course. I couldn't afford it. And actually, when I look back, I think I was probably too scared to do it and have to share my work with other people. But I just read so many books about writing, whatever I could get my hands on, listened to tons of podcasts about writing and the writing process as well, watched, you know, video tutorials with my favourite authors, just to sort of, you know, take it seriously. And I allowed myself to take it seriously as well. And I think that's a really good sort of tip for anyone that's trying to write a book. Take yourself seriously, give yourself the best shot and sort of apply yourself. So when I had taken the time to actually, you know, think about structure and think about story arcs and things like that, I sat down and, and had a go at this first draft. And, you know, as, as I said, the first draft became many, many drafts because it did take many, many drafts to get this book right. You, know, you can't edit a blank page. You've just got to get the words down and then you can think about shaping them, making things shiny and nice and sound good. So, mm. yes, it was, it was, it was a long, long process, but I think ultimately it, it ultimately, it probably took me about a year and a half around other stuff. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Did you approach writing fiction as you approached being a journalist? Like, was it like a nine-to-five? Well, I guess your job wasn't that nine-to-five, but was it that you decided in the morning, okay, this is my work day? Um, and I'm going to write for five hours or I'm going to write 5,000 words or tell me your approach. Yeah, so if I'm in the first draft stage, 
then I will set myself a word count every day. So that tends to be an achievable word count for me is a thousand words. Mm -hmm. And, you know, often if you set yourself something like that, you'll, you will surpass it and it becomes more manageable. So yes, it became a numbers game for me. So I've never been able to sort of sit in a desk and write from nine to five. My brain doesn't have the energy. I don't have the physical energy to do that. And it would just be a big old mess. So I do tend to walk a lot. I swim. I give my body the rest it needs. But if I'm writing a thousand words a day, then I've done well. And I'll allow myself to think, yes, well done. You've done well. Because I'm a walker and swimmer. I I swim Mm. every day and I love it. It's just so head clearing and same with walking. But is it that you have the story in your head? Is that what is happening before you put it down on paper? You swirling around with those characters in a crazy making world? (laughs) (laughs) I do plot out my books but quite roughly. So I'll do sort of a, a chapter plan in where I'll write a paragraph for each chapter. That's that's before I start writing the first draft. I think, okay, oh, this wow. is loosely, yeah. this is loosely what's going to happen. And it always changes. And that is what happens when I'm walking in, when I'm swim, swimming. I think, oh, this really isn't working and I've got a real problem there. But through the process of walking and that sort of repetitive motion, as with swimming as well, I think it just allows your brain the space to sort of work through those little knots and those plot problems. And I often come back from a walk and have to grab my notepad and think, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. So, yes, well, I, I, I do plan initially and I write a first draft and then I actually plot out using post-its what I've done for that first draft and what then needs to change. So I'll move those post-its around. So I've got the various plot, you know, I'm actually looking at my office here and on the wall, there are lots of post-its for my book two that I'm working on. But it helps me to be able to, as with that chapter plan at the beginning and these post-its on the wall, I find it helpful to be able to see the story in its bare bones in terms of plot points and sort of reveals and, um, you know, things, big turning points and things like that. So, As I said, I've spoken to so many writers and nothing comes easy. Uh, It is a very, very challenging occupation. So you've now finished your manuscript. Tell me, because that's really just a tiny part of it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So many other hurdles, right? Firstly is what are you going to do with it? Yeah. So... Obviously, that's that's sending it off to an agent and um, trying to get representation. And that's nerve wracking enough. Um, and I was, yes, I said, so I sent my manuscript off after lots of polishing and actually only two people had read it. And that was my twin sister and my mum. And they were both, you know, I told them both to just be really critical about it. You know, I didn't, it wasn't helpful to anyone for them to say, oh, it's lovely, dear. Um, and so, you know, they did have some feedback and some points and like, and, and then it's the way edited like that. Sent it off to a few agents. And I was very lucky in that I did have a, a few agents come back and, and want to represent um, me in the book. And um, I eventually signed with my wonderful agent, Maddie. And that's when the real work starts because your agent then provides you with, an editorial note telling you everything that they think you need to change about the book. And so that, you know, and then begins the long, long process of actually editing a book again, once you're in sort of uh, in that process. So edited it um, with her for a few months, then it got sent out to publishers and thankfully was picked up 
by um, some different publishers around the world, which is really lovely. And then more um, edits after that, because I have an editor in the UK, an editor in Australia, an editor in uh, the US and an editor in Canada. And they all came together to provide thoughts on this book and how I should edit this book. So I had, you know, authors sometimes have one or two, but I was in the, the I think, fairly unique position of having four um, editors come in on this big editorial note. And so... Um, after taking a deep breath and a few more walks, I sort of approached those edits. And yeah, it's, it's a long old process and it's it's a slow it process. It is. But, you know, also too, um, and, you know, this is just coming to me now, speaking with you, it is such a solitary occupation to start with, right? You're in a room with a, you're there day in, day out. A lot of authors have told me that COVID didn't change their life because that's what they've always done. They've been <laughs> in lockdown forever. Um, yeah. However, <laughs> then the co- collaboration starts and the editorial process that I know some people reject, but there are two, three, four people and all they want is for that story to succeed. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. I couldn't believe that these people cared enough yeah. You know, to cared enough to give their thoughts on this book and do everything that they could to try and make it a success. Mm-hmm. So it, I felt really lucky. I think, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction when you get these editorial notes might be, oh, how dare they, you know, they have, no, my novel's perfect. I can possibly <laughs> do anything better. But it felt like I was getting a cheat code for a computer game or something. I was like, wow, you're telling me what you think I can do to make this book better. That's such a privilege. And thank you so much. So while it was a long process and it wasn't easy, it was quite hard. I did have to remind myself that this is it's you know, I'm in a very lucky position and I felt really grateful to have their thoughts. And they made the book better. That's ultimately what happens when you, you know, collaborate with with editors. They make the book better. <laughs> and that's what they want for you. And then it goes through the sales and marketing process and, you know, and yeah. then the publicity. I was speaking to a wonderful um, Australian author a few months back, Charlotte Wood, a wonderful, beautiful writer, and she told me, and I wonder how you feel about this, she said once the book is out there in the world, she feels that she doesn't own it anymore. It belongs to the reader. I've heard that. And have I you think heard that? Yeah. I have heard that. I've heard a lot of people say that. And I guess I sort of agree. I think because I'm quite early on in the process, it's just, you know, for me, come out in Australia. It's not yet out in the UK. It's not yet out in Oh, the okay. US. Yes. You haven't given it to the reader yet. I, no, I'm starting to feel like, you know, I'm giving them a bit, I'm, I'm handing it over, but I haven't fully sort of released it. But I can see that how that happens. And also I think, I think there's something in that that, protects you and protects your brain as well because writing a book is a really vulnerable and exposing process and I do feel I've been working on this for so long on my own or just with my editors and putting it out into the world is like having your heart cut open and exposed to everyone you know this is me I think stepping back and saying no this is for the readers now is actually a really good way to protect your mental health as an author and and just sort of make the whole thing a bit easier because it's nerve-wracking process. It is, absolutely. Okay, so and now you've started on your second book. Yes. Yeah, wow. <laughs> okay. <Which is laughs> Tell, me that. <laughs> Tell me about so, that. So book two is similar to book one in that it is um it has a very strong-willed heroine. And um, it's in a remote setting again, and there's there's quite a lot of adventure. But this time, it's not hot and sweltering like yeah. um, 
Bannon Bay in Moonlight and the Furthest Daughter. It's very cold and very icy, so we're perhaps going somewhere else with the book. But what's been really interesting is that, you know, when you're writing your first book, nobody's expecting it. You know, you're not writing it for anyone. You, you, you know, I remember thinking, oh, I can write this because nobody's going to read this, or I can take this risk because nobody's going to see it. But when you're writing a second book, no, no, there are people there waiting for you to deliver that manuscript. So not only do you have that pressure, you have time pressure as well. Um, because if you're in a book, a two book contract, like, like I am with my lovely publishers, you have to deliver at a certain date. And so inevitably you have to write a second book much, much quicker than you did the first book. So that's come with its own challenges. But I am finding that um, the same things happen again. You know, I've written this first draft and then I'm taking it to pieces, put it on the wall and realise that I have to move things around. So it's going okay. Um, I'm, I'm excited about it. But it's also quite hard to inhabit two worlds when you're thinking about this first book that you've written and talking about this book that you've written and then trying to write another book at the same time. It's quite, it's quite hard. But um, again, a nice position to be in. But uh, yeah, tricky. <laughs> I, I always say that the second book's got to be the hardest, you know, because you're right. I mean, when you're writing the first book, you you have no expectation. Well, you don't know. I was, I guess it's like having your first baby. You don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you have your second, oh, you know, you know. <laughs> and you can imagine your editor saying about the bit that you've written, oh, I know what she's going to say about that or, yeah. you know, how are sales going to think about this bit? So it's almost, you know, having too much, knowing too much. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Lizzie, getting um, there. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. The book is called Moonlight and the Pearler's Daughter. Lizzie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.